sermon, I will do the last three chapters. So if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, take them and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Since our reading is a little longer than usual, I won't ask you to stand like I normally do. But even as we come to this portion of God's Word, let's recognize that we are indeed coming to God's Word. And so let's, in our hearts, treat it with the same reverence as we would even if we were physically standing. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Dave, would you mind running those slides for me while I read? Thank you. Galatians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, these are God's words. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism, I intensely, I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas. Cephas is Peter, by the way. And I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterwards, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. 
and they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with, Barab- with Barnabas, excuse me, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James... Cephas and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning in the Spirit? Are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? 
or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus, so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but to one and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been, gran for if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would, certain righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The Lord then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God through Jesus Christ. For those of you who were baptized into Christ, have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Pray that God will bless that reading of his word. I will save my pastoral prayer speech before the sermon, so I'll invite you to stand with me uh, once again, and we'll continue in our song worship.
Well, as I said just a few moments ago, we are beginning a sermon series, well, a series of studies through the letter to the Galatians to kind of avoid it becoming monotonous. We'll break it up into several series as we go. The first of them we're going to be looking at is chapters one and two, and I've entitled it Ready to Defend the Gospel. I've, by the way, is my mic on? Can you all hear me clearly? Okay, there we go. Yep, sounds like I can hear myself. Um, I've entitled our first series in Galatians, Ready to Defend the Gospel, because really what we're going to encounter in chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians is Paul's personal story. Why it is that Paul was so passionate about this gospel? Why was it that Paul was willing to go to the mat in such a profound way for this gospel message? And my hope is that as we look at these first couple of chapters, we would learn something of why we should be ready at any given time to defend the gospel when it comes under attack. Well, just a few moments ago, we read the first three chapters of Galatians, and I'll invite you now to turn to chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. By the way, there should be a study guide floating around if you don't have one. Uh, Joseph, could you be so kind as to pass those out if anyone doesn't have one to hand? You'll definitely need that for this morning. Galatians chapter number four. And we'll read from verse one through to the end of chapter six. Once again, I'll invite you to remain seated as we read. Galatians chapter four and verse one. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. <coughs> Excuse me. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I'm fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? They caught you eagerly, but not for good, 
They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I am with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one born by the free woman was born through promise. These things are being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One is Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. You are running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord. You will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing, you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. But you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. 
I say then walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the, desi the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against any such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work. Then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share, in all, his, share all his good things with the teacher. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard, and mercy, even to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.
and all those people said. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, join me as I breathe a word of prayer and we begin our study in the letter to the Galatians. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words. We are reminded as we read them of just how precious the good news of Jesus Christ is. That it truly is a message that we should be willing to live for and if the need be, even willing to die for. We pray that as we open up your word and we begin this study in this glorious letter, help us that we would comprehend its truth. Help us that we would understand the reason for this letter, the world behind it, and that, above all, we would grow in our appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I take a moment and I pray for our brethren at First Baptist Church of Medford who are meeting this morning. Pray for Pastor Greg Spires there as he preaches from the letter to the Romans. Pray that as your people open up your word there, that your spirit would work powerfully in them through the preaching of your word. May Jesus become sweeter to them. May they grow in their love and service to him. May they be sold out in service to him. And may that be the cry of our hearts now as we come to your word. May your spirit use the things that we are about to read and study to awaken greater faith in Jesus and to open our understanding and open our minds to understand the scriptures. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we are beginning a sermon series this morning that I've entitled Ready to Defend the Gospel. And this morning, I just want to introduce Galatians to you. I just want to introduce the letter to you as we get started. Some of you may have gathered that I'm somebody who loves to read. Um, if you've been to our house, you will see not for decoration, purely because I'm reading them and just leave them lying around. You'll see books everywhere. I love to read. Uh, I have an app on my phone. I used to track all of my books. Laura will tell you when she's here that constantly books are arriving in a steady stream in our home. I love to read. And people kind of notice that. And so I every so often get asked by people, you know, what are some good tips for becoming a better reader? You know, I get people who, yeah, I've tried that. didn't really work for me. Never, I haven't read a book since I left school, all those kinds of folks. And they usually want to ask, well, Kofi, how do I become a better reader? My first piece of advice, usually kind of tongue-in-cheek, is get rid of your TV. Um, that might help you. But after I stop being tongue-in-cheek, I usually tell them, learn to appreciate the forest and not just the trees. At that point, they kind of look at me like, what on earth is this guy talking about? Well, what I usually mean by that is before you just try and read a book and jump through to page one, don't do that. Read the table of contents. Read the preface. If the book has a foreword, read that. If it's got an introduction, read that. Kind of get a sense of the big picture before you dive into all the details of the book you're about to read. The author puts that stuff there for a reason. The idea is that as you read that stuff, you get a picture of where he's going and how he plans on getting there. Well, studying a book of the Bible can be a little bit like that. Uh, as you study a book of the Bible, it, it can be the case that we want to just dive into chapter 1, verse 1, and just start reading. And we 
don't know anything about the portion of God's word that's in our hands. And I think when you come to a letter like the letter to the Galatians, that becomes especially important. It becomes really important that we know something of the background, something of the world of this letter as we approach it. And so this morning what I want to do really is to introduce the letter to the Galatians to, as it were, give you a view of the forest before we spend the next, I have it in my calendar, the next six months working our way through each individual tree and shaking each individual branch, as it were. As it were, if we're going to be climbing up the mountain, I want us to kind of take a moment and just appreciate the view before we start trying to trek up the mountain. Now, to help me in that this morning, I want to ask eight questions. On screen, it says seven, but as I was putting this together, I added a bonus question that I thought was very important. So actually, there are eight. I want to ask eight questions this morning that I think will help us to get the most out of this new series of studies that we're going to be doing through the letter to the Galatians. Eight questions I want to ask. They're familiar ones. Chances are you learned them in school like I did. I mean, did you grow up in school learning this poem? I know I did by Rudyard Kipling. I keep six on a servant, men. They teach me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. The observant among you may say, wait a minute, there are six of those. Where did you get eight from? Well, I doubled up a couple of them, so bear with me. But that's basically what we're going to do this morning. What I want to do is to kind of give you the big picture of who wrote this, who are the people he wrote to, why did he write this, what are some of the main themes, really just give you kind of an introduction. This is going to feel more like a Bible study than a typical sermon. But I'm doing this so that when we jump into the book, you're going to start to see that this background information actually helps us in understanding what Paul is saying and doing. So eight questions. Uh, That already tells you that I'm going to have to move kind of quickly. Um, Even if you're not the note-taking type, this may be the one Sunday you want to write some stuff down in that study guide there because there's going to be a lot for us to cover. So I'm going to just jump straight in. Bear with me. Question number one. Question number one, who's the author? Who's the author? Well, you may think, well, Kofi, come on. Like, I could read. Verse one, he says, Paul. Simple, right? Mm, Let's not jump too quickly. Because as we think about this person who's called Paul, I think we can take for granted that we know who this man is. After all, chances are, if you've been in church, you've read the writings of Paul at some point. So, of course, you know who Paul is. Right? Well, actually, let's take a moment, take a step back, and let's kind of learn the life story of this man, Paul, really quickly. I'm actually going to spend a lot of time here. So it's going to feel like I'm spending most of our time in this point, but it's really important for us to kind of get the background as to who this man is. I want to consider that real quickly from two vantage points. Firstly, Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle, you read it there in verse 1. Paul, an apostle not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Why does Paul write that? Why does Paul start by saying and affirming the fact that he is an apostle not sent by men or from men, but by God the Father in Jesus Christ? Well, for that, you need to kind of know his life story. You need to know his life story. I think you can tell his life story in four movements to make it easy to remember they all begin with the letter B. First of all, we meet Paul, and he is a man who is blinded to the light. He's blinded to the light 
Paul was born in a city called Tarsus in Cilicia. In a few moments, I'll put a map up and you'll see that it's not too far from where this letter was actually written. He was a theological student. He studied under one of the best teachers of the day, arguably, arguably the best teacher of the day, a man who was known as Gamaliel I, also known as Gamaliel the Elder. So you read Acts chapter 22 and verse 3. Paul says that he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, referring to Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of our ancestral law. This was not a man who was a nominal Jew. He was a conscientious and practicing Jew. In fact, in Acts chapter 23 and verse 6, Paul tells us not just that he studied to become a Pharisee, that he was the son of Pharisees. The fact that he says the son of Pharisees makes it clear that it may not have just been his father who was a Pharisee, but potentially even his grandfather. In Philippians chapter 3, the only other place where Paul really tells us his life story outside of the book of Acts. In Philippians chapter 3, he tells us that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the smallest tribes. As he describes himself, he was a Hebrew's Hebrew. That this was not just somebody who has some nominal links to the Jewish people, but this was a thoroughbred Jewish man. Well, we meet. Acts for the first time in Acts chapter 8. You might want to turn there, actually. In Acts chapter 8, we meet him for the first time. It's the aftermath of the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen preaches a sermon that is just out of this world for its usage of the Old Testament and how it was, how, if you read the Old Testament rightly, it should have prepared you for the gospel. Well, the sermon doesn't quite go over very well because he ends by basically saying, you, the Jewish people, are 100% accountable for the fact that you killed the Lord of glory. And you had no reason to, given that the Old Testament prepared you for him. Well, like I said, it didn't go over very well. And Stephen paid for that sermon with his life. But look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 with me. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. After this scene is done with the death of Stephen, he's buried by the apostles and their disciples. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Saul agreed with putting him to death. He's a witness to these things. He just kind of sits there. Verse 58 of chapter 7 says that they dragged him, Stephen, out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Not the most friendly encounter in which we meet this man. He hates the Lord Jesus, he, which makes sense given his background. He's a very passionate, very devout Jew. And here they are preaching this message about a man named Jesus that they are claiming is God's Messiah. Well, skip over to chapter 9. We're in chapter 8, so skip over a few pages to chapter 9. And we meet this man, Saul, once again. And when we meet Saul, Saul being his Hebrew name, the situation hasn't changed very much. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Text says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, the way referring to the faith of the disciples of Jesus, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Do, do you get the picture? 
that we are not dealing with a man who was a friend of Jesus or anyone associated with him. If ever there was an unlikely candidate for becoming a believer, I think we could put this man near top of the list. I think we could agree that, at least from what we've read, every time we meet this man, he seems to have this real dislike for this man called Jesus and anyone associated with him. But aren't you glad that our triune God doesn't ask for permission when he wants to save his people? Aren't you glad that, as my dad would say, God is not a gentleman. (laughs) He doesn't ask permission. He doesn't say, can I? He just does. Yes, we meet Paul as he's initially blinded to the light. But secondly, we encounter Paul as he's blinded by the light. So we're in Acts chapter 9. Jump down to verse 3 with me. Acts chapter 9 and verse 3, it says, As he traveled, this being Saul, and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't it fascinating that this voice he hears says, you're not persecuting my people, you're persecuting me. Why? Because there is such an intrinsic relationship between Jesus and his people, such that when his people are being persecuted, is as good as him being persecuted. I love how Warren Wiersbe in his commentary, Be Dynamic, puts this. He says, Saul suddenly found himself on the ground. It was not a heat stroke or attack of epilepsy that put him there, but a personal meeting with Jesus Christ. Well, this meeting gets real. And as his meeting gets real, he's been, he was blinded to the light. He's blinded by the light. But almost suddenly, he becomes, thirdly, a believer in the light. Look at verse 5. Text says, Saul responds and says, Who are you? Don't miss this small word. Who are you, Lord? Saul said. And, of course, Jesus replies, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. A lot can happen in the space of a period, can't it? Isn't it fascinating that Paul goes from hating the mere mention of this man, Jesus, to calling him Lord? And by the way, when he calls him Lord here, this is not the, some people trying to say, well, Paul is simply just saying Lord in the way that we would say sir nowadays. No, 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 no. Remember, this is not about you. He would not call anyone Lord who was not God. Something has happened in the space of him hearing this voice and meeting this man. I mean, isn't it something that there are people who can put up like the most resistance against Jesus Christ and then almost out of nowhere, the man that they once hated so much, it's like the light just turns on and they get it and they understand as they hear the gospel message, the good news of God becoming a man and taking on flesh and entering into our world and living the life that we needed to live and dying the death that we deserved and rising from the dead and that through repentance and faith in him, we can be brought near to him. As they hear that message, it transforms their life in an instant. And the one that they once hated, they now love. Isn't it fascinating that that happens? And that that happened even in this particular instance. Reflecting on this experience later in his life, Paul will put it like this. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read it for you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Paul says, although I have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence, I have more. 
circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm spending a lot of time here because I want you to get a sense of just who this man was and why this gospel, why this good news, why this message captivated a man so much who once hated it. I put it to you that it captivates him because first and foremost, he had experienced it in a way that most of us never will. He experienced this gospel in a very radical and life-altering way. He could not but preach the things he had seen and heard. Oh, that's my fourth B, by the way. I mentioned he was blinded by the light. He was blinded. He was blinded to the light, blinded by it. He became a believer in the light. Fourthly, he becomes a broadcaster of the light. He becomes a broadcaster of the light. So in Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, Jesus tells him, listen, we don't have time for talk, but get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Well, fast forward a little more in Acts chapter 9, and a disciple who's called Ananias, Hananias is his Hebrew name, Ananias, he's given this message that, listen, a man called Paul is coming to you, and Ananias is such an interesting interchange. He says, Lord, do you know who this man is? I mean, of course he did. He just told you he's coming. But he's like, do you know who this man is? Like, this guy is going around killing Christians for the sheer fun of it. He's putting them in prison for the fun of it. Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's the man we encounter who opens this letter. No wonder he says, jump back to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1 with me, that he is an apostle, not from men or by men. He didn't choose this life. This life, as it were, profoundly chose him. That's why he could say that he's an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul didn't ask to become an apostle. This was God's decision. And he simply just said, yes, sir, and submitted his life to the cause of this Christ. So that's Paul the apostle. But what about Paul the author? Let's kind of focus in. We've talked about Paul's life in the big picture. What about Paul the author of this particular letter? Well, Paul would go on to write 13 letters, one of them being this one. And in fact, of all the letters that Paul wrote, this is the one that nobody argues about. Real quickly, the internal evidence points to him writing it. So we just read it in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, Paul, he wrote it. We read it again in chapter 5, verse 2. Did you catch that? Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. So the internal evidence points to Paul writing it. Secondly, there's a lot of external evidence, evidence outside of the Bible that points to Paul writing this. I won't bore you with all the technical details. For those of you who are interested, shoot me an email. I can send you some of the quotes if you are interested in digging into that a little bit. People from the earliest disciples of the apostles, 
through to heretics in church history, all affirm Paul wrote this book. So nobody really argues that Paul wrote it. Of course, you had some skeptics in the 19th century who tried to, but no one took them seriously because of all the books that Paul wrote. We can all agree he wrote this one. Now, we do know that Paul uses a scribe to write this letter. It's kind of a common practice in the ancient world. And in fact, in chapter 6, verse 11, did you catch that when we were reading it? Where Paul says, look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. The typical habit was you had a scribe. The scribe would basically have the letter dictated to them. And then to show that this was authentic, kind of like a signature, the end of the letter would be handwritten by the original person. So Paul says, look at what large letters. We kind of get the sense that Paul had an eye affliction. If you notice, he talked about the Galatians wanting to take out their own eyes and give them to Paul. Seems to suggest that Paul had some kind of ailment with his eyes, which required him to write larger than normal. But that's Paul the author. So that's our first question that we want to answer. Just who was the author of this letter? Well, it's Paul the apostle. That moves us into our second question. Second question for this morning. Who are the audience? So not just who's the author, who are the audience? Verse 2 simply says, to the churches of Galatia. Now, there is some debate as to which churches in Galatia Paul is writing to. If those of you who own study Bibles, I encourage you to, this week, read the introduction to your study Bibles. And in the introduction, you'll note that they talk about the two theories as to where Paul is writing. For this, I encourage you to look at the map that is here. And those of you at home, it should be on your screen. As you can see, Galatia right there in the middle of this map is kind of a large region. It kind of just cuts right through the middle of this part of Asia. And you've got really two parts to Galatia. You've got what you could call the original Galatia, which was the part in the north. It was called Galatia because it was settled by the Gauls from Europe, these Celtic peoples. They migrated and found their way into this part of Asia. And in this part of Asia, they were known as the Galatians. So you had sort of the ethnic north. But then as Rome kind of expanded its power, it created a region which included this bit in the south, which became known as Galatia as well. Easy way to remember it, North Galatia, South Galatia. And if you read various Bible students and commentators, they will all kind of go back and forth as to which one. Did Paul write to the north or to the south? I think the easiest answer is that Paul writes to those in the south. Allow me to give you three reasons why that's the case. First of all, Paul wasn't born too far from South Galatia and would know this region well, which he seems to suggest. That's why he can talk about chapter 4, verse 10. They're the type who were superstitious. The Galatians were known for their superstition. This would suggest somebody who knows the area well enough. You can see on the map there where Tarsus is, it's not that far from southern Galatia. Second of all, we have no record of Paul visiting North Galatia. We do have two whole chapters in the Bible of him visiting the south. That was Paul's first missionary journey. Those of you who never look at the maps in the back of your Bible, here's some homework for you. Look at the maps in the back of your Bible this week. You'll note that there are three missionary journeys that Paul takes. The first of them takes him to those cities that are mentioned right there on the map. Iconium, Lystra, Pisidian Antioch, Derby. He had a fruitful ministry in these places. 
So he would know these churches intimately. That matches with what he says here in the letter, where he speaks quite movingly about the fact that he ministered to them and they loved him. Third, there was a large Jewish community in the south, not the north, which would matter given that circumcision, the law, and these kinds of issues play such a major role in the letter. All of that leads me to agree with the majority of scholars that Paul is writing to a group of churches in the south. So those are our who questions. Who's the author? Who are the audience? I promise the rest of these will move somewhat quicker. Question number three this morning. So, audience, churches in southern Galatia. Three, when did Paul write this letter? Once again, there's a little bit of discussion as to when he wrote this. And actually, far from just being a subject that's important for kind of nerds and Bible scholars, actually, it impacts the way you read this letter. If I can just boil it down, the heart of the issue is whether Paul wrote this before Acts chapter 15 or after Acts chapter 15? Show of hands, anybody know why Acts 15 is important? Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. Maybe this will help some. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This is just after that first missionary journey that I talked about. Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. Paul says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others went, were appointed excuse me, to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that had been done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So you've got this crisis that starts to emerge as Paul has this ministry to the Gentiles that immediately becomes incredibly fruitful. The crisis becomes, these new Gentile converts, do we ask them, since we are the church at this point is majority Jewish, do we ask these people to submit to the law of Moses, including the covenant sign that God gave to Abraham, circumcision? Do we ask these people to submit to that or do we not? Clearly, Paul hadn't been demanding that up to this point, and that seems to cause some consternation. You have these people who come up from uh, Judea to these churches and start saying, no, 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 no. For you to be saved, you must be circumcised. Circumcision being kind of a very painful, might I add, a very painful but a very picturesque picture of submission to the law of God. So basically, you're submitting to God's law by receiving the covenant sign that God said you should. This symbolizes that you need to be saved in order to keep this. And Paul seems to suggest that's not the case. Well, since they came from Judea, he goes to kind of what was the headquarters church at this point, 
Jerusalem and says, okay, we need to figure out the bottom of this. Is this what you guys are teaching? Is this what is considered to be the norm or not? Well, the apostles and those who are aligned with the apostles start to have some discussion about this. You have some submissions from Paul, from Peter, who preached to the Gentiles first and makes it very clear that he didn't ask them to submit to circumcision or to the law of Moses. In fact, he says, listen, we couldn't keep the law of Moses. Why are we going to tell them they need to keep it? James, who is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, according to church history, he steps up and speaks. And finally, when he speaks, everyone's like, okay, I think we're all on the same page here. So jump down to verse 22. Acts 15, verse 22, Paul says, not Paul, excuse me, Luke writes, Then the apostles and the elders, together with the whole church, decided to select men who were among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabas, and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the b brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, again, here's this general region that Paul had been in, greetings. Since we have heard that some, without our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you, along with our dearly beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. This becomes known in church history as the Jerusalem Council, really the first sort of meeting of minds in the body of Christ to determine a theological issue. And it's really a watershed moment because the church unanimously, both the Jewish end of the church and the Gentile end, come together and say, listen, we are not under the law of Moses and therefore we do not require someone to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Now, why is that important? Turn back to Galatians with me. Why is that important for the letter to the Galatians? Well, I think it's important because Paul nowhere talks about this event in the letter. He mentions going to Jerusalem, but Paul goes to Jerusalem multiple times in the book of Acts. If he's trying to deal with the very same issue, I mean, as we read it, did you hear the same issues being brought up? The need for circumcision, the need for the law, the need to keep certain days, the need to submit to the law as an entirety. If Paul is dealing with the self-same issue, and the church has spoken. Why doesn't Paul reference it? Well, I put it to you that Paul doesn't reference it because that event hasn't happened yet when he writes this. I think it makes the most sense that this is written before Acts chapter 15 and before the church as a whole has united and basically said, we are opposed to this teaching that would later become known as the Judaizing heresy so-called, because it attempted to make Gentiles into Jews. If that's the case, we can kind of broadly pinpoint when this was written. Acts chapter 15 happens some point after 49 AD. So if that's the case, if we give a year or so, we can put it as around 48 to 49 AD when this letter was written. If that's the case, and I happen to agree, this would make this not just one of Paul's earliest letters, 
but it would make it the earliest letter in your New Testament. So isn't it funny that one of the first inspired writings, if we're going to take this date seriously, which I think there's good reason to, and again, if you want to dig into that way more than we have time, email me. I can send you my research for this week. It mounted to about 25 pages. You can read that for your own fun. <laughs> but if I think the research is right, the first letter that's written in our New Testaments, chronologically speaking, is written in defense of the gospel from those who were seeking to attack it. Question number four. Where did Paul write from? This is an easy one. Tradition kind of tells us that Paul wrote from his home church of Syrian Antioch. He spends a lot of time in Syrian Antioch when you read the book of Acts, kind of his home base. Which, again, if you look at our map, if I pull that back up again, you can see not too far once again. Makes sense if he's trying to get a letter quickly to this area. So where does Paul write from? Well, he writes from Syrian Antioch. Pretty simple. Question number five. Kind of making some good progress here. Question number five in this little Bible study that we're doing this morning. Why did Paul write Galatians? What's the big reason behind this? Well, in your study guide there, I've included a rather lengthy quote from one commentator who I think did a very good job summarizing it. Paul gets to the region. He plants a number of churches and his message is received. In fact, he tells us that in chapter 4. Turn with me to chapter 4 and verse 13 real quickly. Chapter 4, verse 13 of Galatians. Paul says, you know, pre you know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testify that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So Paul had a very heartfelt welcome among these people. When they heard the gospel, Paul makes it clear in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that they received the Spirit of God. That as they received the Spirit through the hearing of the gospel message, God confirmed his word through his servants, the apostles, with miracles and signs and wonders, which makes sense. I won't go into why that's such a big deal. We'll come back to that when we come to chapter 3 in more detail. But of course, as he writes this letter, as we just read in Acts 15, certain people start making their way up from Judea, telling them that they need to be saved. They're Pharisees who become part of the church in Jerusalem, it would seem. And as they come, they come with this message that you need to be saved. And being saved involves submitting to the law, including the physical sign that God gave, circumcision. And so Galatians essentially is written to combat that and to say, no, actually, Jesus Christ in and of himself is sufficient for salvation. That it is not that there is Jesus plus something else. It is not Jesus plus the law, Jesus plus works of obedience, Jesus plus anything. No, it is simply Christ and his work that is sufficient for salvation. But not just for salvation, but for ongoing favor with God, for our ongoing sanctification. It is still the case, as he says in chapter 3. It's not that you start in the spirit and you're finishing in the flesh. No, no, no. Paul would have them to understand that actually, just as you came to Christ by faith, 
you continue in Christ by faith. That kind of dovetails into my next question this morning, which is what are the melodic line and major themes of Galatians? As you all know, I'm a big believer in the concept that every book of the Bible has a melodic line. That if you, as it were, put your ear up to the book closely enough, you will hear the same theme being expounded in every section. Before I get there, I want to kind of tackle some of the bigger themes there in your study guide. I've included a table with these themes for the benefit of those of you watching online that should be on your screen right now. There are eight themes, I think, that rise out of the letter to the Galatians. The ESV Study Bible, which is one of the best in print, I think, has a very good summary of these themes. I'll run through them quickly and kind of show them to you from the letter. They're in your study guide so you can read them in your own time. First of all, in his sin-bearing death, Christ is a substitute for all Christians whom he brings into a new realm of freedom and life. There's a big emphasis as you read Galatians on the death of Christ. So chapter 1 verse 4, which we'll look at in more detail next week. Paul talks about Christ as the one who gave himself for our sins. Chapter 2 verse 20, probably the most famous verse in this letter. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live through the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 3.13, one of my favorite verses in this letter. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us through Jesus' substitutionary death. By the way, if you want to know more about penal substitutionary atonement, I preached a message on that here in this very church. You can go to our YouTube channel, search for penal substitution, and you will find that message. It's about an hour and 15 minutes long. And I spend a lot of time showing from Scripture why that is the only biblically defensible understanding of the atonement. That's for another time, though. I encourage you to listen to that. Secondly, Paul says that this gospel of Christ is for humanity, but there is no sense in which it has its origin in humanity. This is going to be a big theme in chapter 1, that this gospel that he preached, he didn't make up, and neither did anybody else for that matter. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of divine origin. Third, the gospel is appropriated but not by works of law, but by faith, which is the route to justification. Chapter 2 and verse 16 is one of the clearest statements in all the Bible in relation to the doctrine of justification. He says, that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. There's no way that you can become righteous by your keeping the law. It is only through Christ. Four, to require circumcision and other mosaic ceremonies such as dietary laws and Jewish holidays as a supplement to faith is to fall back from the realm of grace, faith, and freedom and to come under the whole law and its curse since comprehensive observance of the law is not possible. You can see all those references there. This is a big theme in the book. Why do you want to go back to the law when if you can't keep the whole law, you come under the curse of the law? To add the keeping of the law to the sufficiency of Jesus' work, Paul would have us to understand, is basically to reject Jesus' work. To make this point, number five, Paul will make much of, of Genesis, excuse me, chapter 15 and verse 6, and Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. 
two texts in the Old Testament that point to the truth that salvation is solely on the basis of faith alone, that it is not by obedience, it is not by keeping the law. And this was true in the case of Abraham, and it was true when God spoke it to Habakkuk. Six, the Christian life has its source in the believer having died with Christ to sin and therefore having renounced the flesh. Union with Christ is one of the most important doctrines in this letter. In fact, there are some commentators who say justification by faith really isn't the issue in this letter. It's union with Christ. I don't know if I go entirely there, but I do think they're onto something. Union with Christ is a very important theme. Because we have been joined to Christ, we have a new relationship to sin. We have a new relationship to the flesh. And we cannot continue in sin and the flesh because something has changed. Number seven, the Spirit is a source of power and guidance in the Christian life. And the work of the Spirit produces love and faith. There's a lot of Spirit talk in Galatians. And it's not by accident. I don't think Paul is just throwing this stuff in there to sound super spiritual. I think he's being very intentional in saying that it is through the Spirit that true obedience flows out of the Christian. That it's not because, well, you keep the law and you're really obedient. That's not the reason why true good works flow from the believer. No, it's because of the work of the Spirit on the inside. He is the one who brings about faith and love. And finally, number eight, that the Christian life consists not in pleasing people, but in pleasing Christ our Master and being willing to suffer persecution for the sake of his cross. The fool's teachers were all about them being pleased by your obedience. But Paul says, listen, it's not about your obedience and it's not about keeping them happy. Ultimately, you are called to serve Christ. You are not called to serve anyone. With all that in mind, what's the melodic line for this book that I'm going to be running with for the totality of this series? Well, in one sentence, it's like this. You've been liberated by the Spirit through the gospel of God's grace. So stand firm in your freedom and reject any addition to the gospel. Now, don't worry, that's going to be on every single study guide in the, I have it marked out for 24 messages in Galatians. Every single one of them is going to have that melodic line on there. Because I'm going to argue that as you read the letter as a whole, that theme is kind of a consistent beat. Sometimes Paul might switch it and look at it from the negative. Sometimes he might look from the positive. Sometimes he's just exploring the implication of that. But I, this is my good faith attempt at kind of boiling down the letter into one sentence. And as we work our way through the letter to the Galatians, we're going to allow this to kind of give shape to our teaching as we go. You guys have been great. I'm almost done. Two more questions. Question number seven. How does Paul structure his argument? How does Paul structure his argument? In other words, what's the outline of this book? Just in the big picture, the 30,000 foot view. Well, notorious, um, excuse me. Galatians is kind of notorious to out, notoriously hard to outline. Do you go with this as the theme? Do you go with this as the theme? As best as I could, I this week took a you know, some time and try to figure it out. This is the outline that I came up with. 
So it's there in your study guide. You have an introduction in verses one through nine, kind of sets the scene for what he's going to talk about. In chapter 1, verse 10, through to chapter 2, verse 21, you've got Paul defending the gospel from the vantage point of his personal experience. He's going to point to how it is he heard this gospel, how he didn't learn this gospel, but it was given to him. And he's going to say, listen, unlike these false teachers who can't claim that their message came from the Spirit and it came from God, I can. And that should help you to think appropriately about the gospel so he defends it from personal experience in chapters three and four i've put there that he defends it propositionally he starts to actually walk through the doctrine of justification by faith and in walking through the doctrine of justification by faith proposition by proposition he shows that that's the only way in which the work of christ is appropriated to the believing sinner, that it's not through works of the law, but it's solely by faith in Christ. Well, five and six, well, most of six, five, one to six, ten, he then defends it practically. He says, listen, the obedience and good works that these false teachers tell you you need to do, you can't get there by works of the law. You can only get there through the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit comes by faith. And so the gospel is defended practically. And then finally, verses 11 to 18 of chapter 6, you have his conclusion. So you've got an intro, a conclusion, and really three main parts to the body of the letter. Well, finally, I told you I had seven when I wrote this, and I added an eighth one. How do we see Jesus in this letter? If the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, in some way, shape, or form, either prepares us for Christ, presents Christ to us, or points us to Christ. How does Galatians do this? Well, there's so many ways we'd lose our time. So I only have one. One last passage, and I'm done for this morning. You guys have been wonderful. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. Please note what Paul says here. He says, Now the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Well, this is pointing us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll look at it in more detail when we get here, where God makes promises to Abraham, unconditional, gracious promises. And one of them was that through him and through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. Not just Abraham and his seed, to whom God made specific, specific promises, but all the nations would come to know blessing through him. I venture around the room, anybody Jewish in the room? Ah, you're all Goyim, you're all Goy, the nations, Gentiles. Well, we are here, all of us today, precisely because God was faithful in fulfilling his promise by sending his son, and that through his son, who fulfilled the law that we had all broken, who went to the cross, who gave his life through him, we can have the promise of the Spirit we can be 
joined to the family of God. We who were covenantally disconnected from God are now brought in to a glorious relationship with him. The only reason that happens is because of Christ and because of his gospel. The law couldn't do this. All the law could do was point out the fact that you are imperfect and that you need somebody or someone to save you. And praise God through the gospel he does that. If you're here today or you're listening somewhere else and you don't know this God. You don't know what it is to be saved by him. I'm not even going to wait for the rest of the letter to unfold. I should just tell you up front. Turn from your sin. Turn to him in faith. Turn from sin. We call that repentance. Turning to him. That's faith. And then repentance and faith. A repentant faith or a believing repentance, whichever way you want to phrase it. It's in that work that we find true salvation. And that's going to be the theme that we see all through this letter. My hope in doing this study in Galatians really is to have the good news of the gospel just wash over us week after week in all of its glorious implications and all that it has to say for us. And my hope is that as we hear these words week in and week out, and as you take the time, I hope you'll take the time each week to read the text beforehand before we study them and to kind of have them know immerse immerse yourselves in them and to kind of you know sit deep in your minds my hope is that we'll start to see a gospel culture develop among our fellowship the kind of culture that flows out of the gracious work of god in christ where we treat one another with that kind of love and grace and acceptance even when we don't always agree and even when we view things differently why because salvation isn't even conditioned on us agreeing on everything (laughs) ultimately It's conditioned on one thing. Repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me, beloved. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for this letter. We thank you so much for the truth that it contains. We pray that as we begin this amazing journey through this wonderful letter, help us that we would not just know your gospel, but we would love it. And as a result, we would seek to serve others through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.